The Guns of Avalon, Chapter 2. All right, so Chapter 2 is going to get darker. As we've said, this is the darkest novel of the series, but there is some lightness in this chapter. So here's when Corwin meets the woman named Lorraine. He says, quote, The country was called Lorraine, and so was she. If I happened to be in the mood to hand you a line, I would tell you we met in a meadow behind the castle, she gathering flowers, and me walking there for exercise and fresh air. Crap. End quote. And he goes on to say that the polite term would be, quote, camp follower, end quote. And in fact, she's a prostitute for the army. And so she's sort of hanging around. He starts looking at her. She starts looking at him. And he ends up kind of asking her out, which really means she's going to come to his rooms. And we get kind of a description of her. And then we get this great scene between the two of them. And I won't go into all of it. Um, It's a really fun back and forth. It's very heavy on the dialogue. Uh, So there's really like an interesting pacing to it. And it almost feels like a a play script, this scene. Um, Feels a little bit like a screenplay. And we get a very different Corwin here than... Nine Princes in Amber. It's it's a little bit of a mirror of the scene with Moira, the Queen of Rebma, where Corwin just ends up having casual sex with the Queen. And here he doesn't do that right away. And he's propositioned, just like he was propositioned by Moira, you know, albeit a prostitute. But he actually says, quote, no, I'd rather talk, have a glass of wine, end quote. And in their back and forth, we learn a couple of things. So we find out that she used to be married and that it's her late husband, a guy named Jarl, who used to beat her. It was him. He's the original guy who found the fairy ring of toadstools, which became the Dark Circle. So, you know, she's pretty heavily involved in the larger, like, thing that's going on with this battle against the sickness that fell upon the land. And she says to Corwin, quote, I'd like to see you fight with the goat man, end quote. And so we're kind of reinforcing this local objective that Corwin has, his quest, assist Ganelon in killing the goat man, right? And Corwin actually says, quote, I have to, end quote. And so that's reinforcing that Corwin sort of knows that all of this is somehow his fault because of his death curse, and he feels this need to rectify it. And Corwin's still trying to be a little bit aloof here with Lorraine. He obviously is not going to tell her everything he knows. He's doing the faking it thing, but he's doing it in sort of a lighthearted way, and she knows he's bullshitting her. He knows that she knows he's bullshitting, but it sort of doesn't matter. She's the camp prostitute. Like, Corwin's just trying to have a good time. And she asks him if he'll get on his horse and grab a lance and trounce this particular officer named Harold, who's been beating her, just like her ex-husband used to do. And Corwin's like, yeah, no problem. Quote, consider him trounced, end quote. And then she says, quote, I love you, end quote. And that becomes a little bit of thing. And he's like, don't say that, you know. And she's like, okay, I like you. And he's like, fine. So there's definitely a chemistry between them, and they're having a good time. And then all of the sudden, Corwin has kind of this spell where someone's trying to 
contact him by Trump. He says, quote, Someone was looking for me. It was someone of the House of Amber, doubtless, and he was using my Trump or something very like it. There was no mistaking the sensation. If it was Eric, then he had more guts than I gave him credit for, since I had almost napalmed his brain the last time we'd been in contact. It could not be random unless he was out of prison, which I doubted. If it was Julian or Cain, they could go to hell. Blaze was probably dead, possibly Benedict too. That left Gerard, Brand, and our sisters. Of these, only Gerard might mean me well, so I resisted discovery successfully. It took perhaps five minutes, and when it was finished, I was shaking and sweating, and Lorraine was staring at me strangely. End quote. And at the end of this, he says he's shaking and sweating, and Lorraine's like staring at him, thinking, what the hell's wrong with this weird guy? Five minutes, by the way, that's a long time to be in this spell, and she's still hanging out there. Like, she doesn't leave, she doesn't go get help, it's sort of weird. So a couple of things to unpack here. First of all, it's a great opportunity for Zelazny to just like catch the reader up on all the brothers and sisters. He does this a few times right throughout the books where Corwin just kind of mentally files through all of his siblings. Again, Brand is sort of left out of this as the one that we really don't know anything about. And, you know, how many times is he going to have to say... I don't know what's going on with Brand before the reader starts to catch on that Brand might have some important role to play in all of this. The second thing is that he's reminding the reader about Trump's. And that's an important reminder because Corwin doesn't actually have a deck of cards on him, and yet they're really important to the lore. And so he's just using this moment to remind the reader that this is how the family communicates. So Lorraine asks Corwin, you know, like, what was that? What's happening? What's wrong with you? And Corwin tries to kind of brush it off. Like, it's no big deal. I just get this spell sometimes. And she actually says that she saw something during his spell. She says, quote, I saw a face. Perhaps it was on the floor. Maybe it was in my head. It was an old man, end quote. And she goes on to describe him a little bit more. And it's quite clear that she's seen the face of Oberon, and he actually slaps her at that point, which is, you know, unfortunate just when we were starting to think that Corwin was becoming a little bit more of a gentleman. Uh, He does something to remind us that he's basically still a, a pretty big asshole, and she doesn't deserve to be slapped. But anyway, he's, like, pretty stunned that she's able to describe the face of Oberon, and he kind of brushes it off then as a joke you know he's like don't worry about it i just get the spell and people think they see my father on the wall of a castle it's not a big deal and i think this whole scene is a subtle reference to hamlet shakespeare's hamlet so in act three of hamlet the main character hamlet is in a bedroom with his mother gertrude and they're having this argument and the ghost of hamlet shows up and here corwin's in a bedchamber with a woman and the ghost of his father kind of shows up in hamlet in act three the ghost is showing up to kind of remind hamlet that he has an objective which is to get revenge 
but he seems to be on a diversion with the play and the actors, and he's given his mother a hard time instead of going after Claudius to get revenge. And in some ways here, we can kind of imagine that the feeling is that Oberon's ghost is showing up. We know that Corwin is on a diversion. He's decided to stop and help out this place, Ganelon. He's spending time with this woman instead of getting his revenge on Eric. So there's just some interesting parallels there. And why does she see Oberon? Like, are we supposed to believe here that Oberon was trying to contact Corwin with the Trump, even though he's just down the hall, asleep, disguised as Ganelon? You know, is this a way of kind of throwing us off the scent? Is Zelazny saying, well, if we have this moment where it's like Oberon's trying to contact Corwin, then no one's going to think, oh, Ganelon might be actually Oberon. Or on the other hand, is Zelazny trying to give us a hint by saying the presence of Oberon is here in this castle. And later we'll think when, you know, when we learn that Ganelon is Oberon, like, oh yeah, cool. Like Corwin almost picked up on that. It's not really clear and it's never really explained. Anyway, later Corwin says, quote, a devil wind began to scream and I heard the rapid rattle of rainfall that came with it, end quote. And again, we get that demon motif, a devil wind, very similar to the demon wind at the end of Nine Princes in Amber. And we're getting that all the time. I I won't point out every single one, but in Guns of Avalon, we're always getting, you know, oh, the devil this, and you're a demon, and it's just like a constant motif. And what happens here is that things start to get kind of scary, and this would just be an amazing moment in the movie, you know, just like... It's dark outside, it starts to rain, the wind is howling, like you know, something wicked this way comes sort of thing. And it's just like the leaves are rattling and she's freaking out. And it, it's it's kind of like a horror movie. You know, this is, this is what's going on in this book, really, in these first several chapters. It's a horror show. You know, you've got the undead, you've got a fairy ring of toadstools and a dead girl is found and, and it, it's... It's very dark. And if you imagine this as a series or a movie, like I think of it a bit like, you know, Game of Thrones, where there's a lot of Game of Thrones that's, you know, in King's Landing and it's, you know, maybe brighter and there's all of the intrigue and the palaces and and then you have Winterfell. But then you have like the White Walkers and and this whole thing with the undead, which is just pure horror, right? And And that's kind of how I think of Amber, you know, there's part of us that's like, hey, can we get back to that cool place with the palaces and Amber and the intrigue? But there is this book, and especially these first few chapters, where Corwin's really dealing with uh, the darkness that's upon this land that he thinks is a result of his death curse. And these creatures are a horror movie. And as Corwin and Lorraine hole up in his room waiting for something awful to happen, she actually comes clean that, quote, I've got a touch of the second sight, end quote. And she talks about how her mother had it and her grandmother had it. And that's a foreshadowing, by the way, of Dara and her mother and her grandmother who died violently. And then her great-grandmother was Lintra the Hellmaid. So that's interesting, and we'll come back to it. But this is like one of the reasons that I think Lorraine is a shadow of Dara. But in any event, it's clear that Lorraine has some 
magical capabilities. That's how she saw Oberon. And it's interesting because we get this sense, I think for the first time, that even a creature of shadow, a mortal creature of shadow, can have some kind of magical abilities that are a little bit like the power of the Amberites. And that perhaps these supernatural abilities aren't entirely limited to the House of Amber. Maybe it's something that shadow mortals can get a bit of themselves. And in this way, I think Lorraine, who again, I think is probably a shadow of Dara, and that's why she has these magical abilities. But also she's sort of a precursor to characters like Jazra and even Julia. You know, these women who just have like a touch of the second sight, and if given the proper training, could actually become pretty powerful magical creatures in and of themselves. And then we get the full story here, by the way, that it's the daughter. It's Lorraine's daughter. Her and Jarl, the husband that beat her, they had a little girl. And it's that little girl that died at the center of the fairy ring. And that was the beginning of the Dark Circle. And Corwin's like, oh, God, that's awful. I'm sorry. And there's a little bit more back and forth about how, you know, she thinks Corwin's also magical. And he's, again, trying to avoid the conversation but they both are starting to feel like they're getting the heebie-jeebies. They both like feel it in their bones. There's something outside that window. There's something coming for them. And it's because this evil force, they know that, that Corwin is here and that he's powerful and they need to come check him out. And Corwin says, quote, If I am really he who would destroy it, and by it he means the goat creature, it would be foolish to seek me out here and the keep of its enemy where I am surrounded by strength. I would say it's one of his minions looking for me. And perhaps somehow that is what my father's ghost, I don't know. If its servant finds me and names me, it will know what preparations to make. If it finds me and destroys me, it will solve the problem. And if I destroy the servant, it will know more about my strength. Whichever way it works out, the horned one will be something ahead. Why should it risk its own pronged dome at this stage in the game, end quote. And I really love this paragraph because, you know, a couple reasons. One is that it really shows Corwin's kind of complex strategic thinking. You know, it's for centuries he's been in battle and trying to figure out his enemy and planning and plotting, right? And so it's not as great of a master strategist as Benedict, perhaps, but Corwin's pretty good at it. And I also like that he says... Maybe that's what my father's ghost meant. And that's the most direct reference to Hamlet that we get here. You know, the ghost of my father. Why would he say that? Because he knows that Oberon's alive. And I think he's just doing a literal quote from Hamlet. And then Lorraine keeps asking questions. You know, she's like, what do you mean? If it finds you, if it names you. And he's like, don't worry, I'm not going to hurt you. And she says something kind of peculiar. She says, quote, I am afraid, and you will hurt me. I know it, but I want you. Why do I want you? End quote. And he says, I don't know, but I have a theory about this. I don't think it's just Zelazny bringing sex into the story for fun. I think she's a shadow of Dara. And, you know, that's just my theory. But, you know, Dara's going to be hanging around nearby right about now. 
She will have already made the plan with Oberon. And the plan is that she's going to seduce Corwin and their offspring will be a son of both Chaos and Amber and will assume the throne in this greater battle between Amber and Chaos, right? That's sort of the overarching plot of all 10 novels. And it kind of starts right here. And my theory is that Lorraine is strangely drawn to Corwin, like she wants to reproduce with him. And it's because she's a shadow of of Dara. Just my theory. Anyway, sure enough, this creature shows up. And the creature is described like this, quote, It was well over six feet in height, with great branches of antlers growing out of its forehead. Nude, its flesh was a uniform ash gray in color. It appeared to be sexless, and it had gray leathery wings extending far out behind it and joining with the night. It held a short, heavy sword of dark metal in its right hand, and there were runes carved all along the blade. With its left hand, it clutched at the lattice. End quote. So we're in like full-on D&D territory here. And the exchange between Corwin and this creature is just so awesome, and I would love to see this acted out in a series or a movie. It's, it's really like males Corwin's character, kind of the smartass. Corwin says, quote, enter at your peril, end quote. And he's pointing Grace Wandier at this thing. And, you know, the thing is like laughing at him. And it says, quote, you are not the one, for you are smaller and older. Yet that blade, it could be his. Who are you? End quote. And he's recognized Grace Wandier. But Corwin's looking kind of thin and withered away so no one really believes he could be so strong and Corwin's like who are you and the guy says Strigold Weir is my name conjure with it and I will eat your heart and liver and Corwin says quote conjure with it I can't even pronounce it end quote and then he goes on to say that my cirrhosis would give you indigestion anyway and it's just you know a really fun back and forth again Corwin's the smart ass uh you know he's just a great hero and the thing's kind of demanding to know who Corwin is. And then Corwin casts a little spell. And, you know, it doesn't work, but it makes Strigaldweer uncomfortable. And then eventually Strigaldweer bursts into the room and they fight. And this is a great action sequence. You know, Corwin lunging at him with the sword. He cuts him. He's, Corwin says, quote, you burn prettily, end quote. And... You know, they go back and forth, and the guy's pretty tough. Corwin stabs him through the heart, but he's like, that's not where I keep my heart. And then they end up kind of wrestling, and Corwin gets his hands around the thing's throat, and he basically has to choke it to death before Strigaldweer is able to choke Corwin to death. So they're just, like, locked in this thing with their hands around each other's throats, and it's pretty gruesome. And he ultimately kills the thing, and right before the thing dies, he goes, you! So again, recognizing Corwin, just like the Hellcats. And then the thing bursts into flames, and Lorraine comes over and puts her arm around Corwin and says, can you, like, take me back to my place? And he does, and he finishes the segment by saying, quote, that's how I met Lorraine, end quote. And it's super fun, because it's like, that's their first date, and it's a hell of a first date for her. Okay, in this next section, a couple of weeks have gone by, and we cut to a scene of Lance, Ganelon, and Corwin sitting on their horses on a hill, kind of overlooking 
this valley below and it's twisted and dark and it's got all these creatures and it's a little bit like the Valley of Garneth near Amber that's been taken over by the Black Road. And they're planning out their attack and that's really what's going to happen next. And I think here we get the most explicit version yet that sort of correlates this dark circle with the Black Road. Corwin definitely knows it's his doing. You know, he's feeling some level of guilt. He says, quote, Oh, my father, what have I wrought? End quote. And he's kind of fearing the judgment of Oberon. And it's kind of interesting that he's worried about what his father would think in this moment because his father's right beside him on the horse. And he says something interesting. Corin says, quote, If I could help clean up this mess in this land called Lorraine, I knew that I would have a chance at least to try what I most wanted and perhaps succeed, end quote. And so he's got some kind of new objective. Like his previous objective was just kill the goat creature for Ganelon and these people and then move on. He's really trying to get to Avalon. That's what's going on. He needs to get the pink powder stuff that's going to ignite in amber and make the guns work and all of that. And, you know, this is a diversion. He's on a side quest, but he's kind of evolved this quest now into, like, he definitely wants Amber, but he's starting to think, you know, in order to earn it or deserve it, he's not only going to have to defeat Eric, but also set right the thing that he feels he unleashed with his death curse. And in order to do that, in order to be able to really defeat Amber's enemies, he kind of has to learn about them. He's got to defeat them here in some small way so he can prepare for this larger battle. So they go back and forth and they're talking about stuff. And there's a little interesting side conversation where we get Lance's perspective on Corwin, the legend of Corwin. Now, they still don't know that Cory, who's sitting next to him, is Corwin, but they, both Ganelon and Lance, know of this Corwin, and it's very interesting because it seems that Lance and Ganelon have never talked about Corwin. And so we get a little story from Lance's perspective where he says, quote, Corwin of Amber? Forget his message. He is a man without honor, and his promise means nothing. I know of him. Long ago he ruled in this land. Do you not recall the stories of the demon lordling? They are the same. That was Corwin in days before my days. The best thing he did was abdicate and flee when the resistance grew too strong against him. End quote. And it's pretty cool, right? Because if you think about it, he's talking about the old days in Lorraine, long before Ganelon arrived, which we know is about 12 years ago, Lorraine time, and about 360-some-odd years ago, Amber time. But he's talking about a shadow of Corwin who would have ruled before Lance's time. You know, let's call it a couple of generations. I mean, let's call it 50 years. He makes it sound like it could be longer ago than that, but let's just even say 50 years. We know that the Amber or Avalon to Lorraine time differential is about 1 in 30. So, you know, 50 years earlier, you're talking about 1,500 years earlier amber time and you know was corwin in avalon had he created avalon 1500 years ago 
Anyway, Ganelon talks a little bit about the Corwin he knew, and Lance is kind of interested, and he says, quote, you never spoke of this before. How did it occur? End quote. And Ganelon says, none of your business. And I think that's perhaps a hint that there's some stuff that Ganelon slash Oberon told Corwin that might be kind of embellished, and he just doesn't want Lance contradicting any of it, so he's like, we're not talking about this anymore. So they wrap that part up, and then they get back to kind of the plan, you know, the plan is like they got to go into this dark circle, they got to kill the horned one, and then everything else will crumble. You know, who's going to do it? Ganelon's like, maybe you can do it, Corey, or maybe I can do it. Should we attack? Yes, they're sort of going back and forth, and finally they agree. And they decide to attack within two weeks. They go back to the keep of Ganelon, and then there's another scene with Lorraine. And at this point, Lorraine and Corin are like full on dating. And it's an important scene because she's had a dream. And, you know, we already know that she's got like a touch of the paranormal. And so Corwin's like, what's the dream about? And she said, you know, it's about the coming battle. And she sees Corwin and the Horn One locked in combat in her dream. And Corwin, of course, wants to know who wins. But she says she doesn't know. And then she goes, quote, as you slept, I did a thing that might help you, end quote. And so she's obviously cast some kind of spell, protection spell, I don't know. Corwin's like, ugh, I wish I hadn't done that. And then she tells him that she dreamed of her own death. And that's important. Obviously, it's a foreshadowing. It's a bad omen. Corwin doesn't bat an eye. He's like, uh, you know, you can imagine him thinking like, oh, yeah, well, that's probably pretty much what's going to happen. And he wants to take her away from this place. He keeps promising, I can take you. And he even says he can take her to Cabra which is kind of fun. He's been telling everyone that he's Corey from Cabra, the lighthouse of Cabra. Makes it out to be sort of a, you know, some big country, but it's just, you know, the lighthouse island. And he says, I can take you there or I can take you to anywhere you want. And he's kind of implying he'll take her on a shadow walk to some incredible shadow, whatever she wants. He doesn't say that, but that's obviously what he means. And, and she says, quote, no, my place is here, end quote. And... It's pretty interesting that she says that because in the previous chapter, she had said, like, take me away from here. You know, I want to go somewhere else. And, you know, just here in chapter two, one chapter later, she's kind of changed and she's decided, no, my place is here. And so I think that's very sophisticated character building on Zelazny's part. You know, we know he's all about characters who go through change, characters who have transformation, heroes that start out one person and end up another person. That's like a big thing for Zelazny. But even in this tiny little character who will only know for a couple chapters in this little part of the story, you know, which is just one part of one book and a big series, he still like puts her on this radical character arc. And so Corwin's like, you're a fool. And she's like, you know, I know I love you. And he said, don't say that. And, you know, at the end, she's crying. And Corwin says, quote, that was Lorraine. End quote. And that's the end of chapter two of the Guns of Avalon. About 5,000 words this chapter, which is almost half of chapter one. And as we get into chapter three, chapter three is 3,400 words. So he's really picking up the pace of the novel as we head into this like final showdown between the Keep of Ganelon and the Wardens of the Dark Circle. <laughs> 